This video is brought to you by Passport, the Bitcoin hardware wallet you already know how to use. Stay tuned to the video to learn more. Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, our TBL legal correspondent, and of course, partner at Amundsen Davis, Joe Carlosari, to talk about everything going on on the legal front when it comes to Bitcoin and crypto more broadly, and also a little bit of macro. Joe, how's it going today? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. And I could not be more excited to chat both of the legal side, but also macro. Crazy day in markets here today. To say the very least, you know, it's uh, March 31st, quarterly rebalancing, um, crazy, crazy stuff going on. And uh, of course, no no shortage of things to talk about at all, either on the macro or the legal front. Um, so uh, always a pleasure to have you on. I'm really excited for this one. Um, our viewers will know, uh, you know, that uh, very, very recently there has been this slew following uh, 2022 of, uh, of lawsuits uh, towards these, these crypto firms and also, uh, you know, firms that, that offer Bitcoin services. A lot of this is coming in the wake of what happened in 2022, and um, many perceive the harsh regulatory crackdown that's occurring now as sort of, you know, uh, try, these regulatory agencies trying to save face after what occurred in 2022. Talk to us about what you see going on right now from the legal side of things. We know Binance is being sued. We know several other uh, um, uh, individuals and crypto uh, agencies are being sued, whether it's by the CFTC or, or SEC. So walk us through some of the some of the big hitters right now. Yeah, uh, that's a long topic. Um, so let's let's just start with where where my overall view of how we got here and where we're headed. Right. So first off, Joe, I think you have to look at the current. Uh, tsunami of enforcement that we're seeing as a direct result really of the collapse of FTX. And let me explain why. There was a hope by many on the Hill, many regulators even, that uh, last year there was going to be a hard push to get some sort of omnibus crypto package passed. Um, there was real traction with uh, relevant committees. They were putting forward draft legislation. There was some um, support from the White House. As you know, the White House had those executive orders where they were studying various aspects of cryptocurrency and its impact on national security and the environment and so forth. And I think all that died with the collapse of FTX. When FTX went down, I think that the, the even the pro-crypto legislators, the voices on, Cong on the Hill for uh, crypto legislation, they said, we got to step away from this. We've got mud on our face because we were affiliated with SBF and some of them took campaign contributions. And they said, this isn't going to be something we're going to solve. This is your problem, regulators. This is your problem, enforcement chiefs at CFTC and the SEC. And they said, you guys go handle it. So at that point, there was a clear message, I think, from the Hill to the enforcement agencies, we're taking the gloves off. You guys do what you need to do and move forward with this. Now, many of these cases were under active investigation for months, if not years, before the recent filing. But I think that the reason that you're seeing this final uptick, to your point, uh, in all this, these filings that have come uh, is because of the collapse of, uh, of FTX. And they said, you're right, we need to, we need to get control of this space. You know, so in, in 2022, at this point, um, the whole year, I think they charged a total of, uh, let's see, um, it was 24 pieces of litigation in the entire year in 2022 in, in the crypto related sphere. Okay. In the first month so far, they're already at 10. Um, so you can see the pace is rapidly accelerating. And I think the key takeaway I have right here is they have finally realized that one-off actions against 
minor players, you know, the, the, the negotiated settlements and uh, agreements with people like Kim Kardashian, they're going to be insufficient to get control of this space, right? We have to go after the big players. We have to go after the Binances of the world, and we have to go after the Coinbases, uh, and even uh, in, in coordination with what has uh, been deemed by Nick Carter's Operation Choke Point 2.0, which we can get into a little bit, I think they realize even even some of the uh, on-ramps and banking partners that aren't necessarily engaging crypto activity, we need to solely, you know, turn the knife on, uh, turn the screw on them to make sure that they effectively are not aiding and abetting these exchanges and their activities. So ton of stuff to unpack, but that's my overarching view. So which one do you want to talk about first? What's most interesting? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about what's going on with Binance first and foremost, because obviously it it is representative of, uh, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest global US dollar on-ramp to Bitcoin. So what's going on with them? Why, uh, what regulatory agencies are going after them? Uh, in, in you know, what, what are the likely outcomes of this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's, there was a suit filed by the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And you, you may ask, well, why is CFTC filing this suit as opposed to the SEC or other bodies? And the real answer from that is because they're engaging in swaps, they're engaging in futures, and they're engaging in um, all these derivatives, which would fall under the CFTC's jurisdiction, not the SEC. Now, keep in mind, they also sell what are purported to be unregistered securities. So nothing about the CFTC suit would uh, pr uh, prevent some companion suit being filed from the SEC. And as you may recall, frequently there's been this back and forth between CFTC and the SEC about, you know, what is a security? What is what is a commodity? And each agency, each commission ba basically has their own incentive to claim something is or is not a commodity or security, right? Because they want to increase the jurisdictional reach of their particular commission. So in this case, there's a line in the complaint against Binance that they're selling futures and derivative products with the underlying being Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum, which the CFT claims are commodities. Now, again, just because a regulator says something doesn't mean it's true, right? Just because the SEC says XYZ token is a security doesn't mean it is in fact security. Same thing goes with the commodity. Just because the CFTC says Ethereum is a commodity or they view Ethereum as a commodity doesn't make it so. There is really only one body, actually, technically there's two, uh, bodies that can declare something to be a security or a commodity. Either the Congress can say in, with legislation, we believe this is a commodity, we believe this should be treated as a security, or there's another body. You know what that is? The president himself? No, the court system. The court system is going to decide these questions, what constitutes an investment con contract under applicable securities laws. Um, so investment contract is a broad catch-all, and that's really important to understand if you're analyzing these cases, that outlines a, a variety of schemes and situations where something could in fact be a security. It's a type of security that Congress wrote into law that's overly broad, and we said, we want to have this discretion for the SEC to find situations where they could de determine, okay, this scheme that you put together, we don't care what you're labeling it as. We think this is in fact a security. Um, and 
when you're analyzing it, you have to apply the Howey factors, which most people are familiar with, and a court's going to apply those and make a determination, okay, these people were engaged in the sale or aiding and abetting the sale of an unregistered security. So how does this relate back to Binance? So the CFCTC files this suit. They're claiming a whole host of different things. Number one, their allegations are that they're operating in un unregistered, unlawful uh, commodity futures trading uh, exchange in the United States. They're soliciting U.S. customers. They, they have all these allegations about perhaps uh, inappropriate trading on the platform by Binance itself without proper disclosures. But the core of their suit is that they are being permissive in allowing U.S. customers to interact with an exchange that has activity that would fall under CFTC's jurisdiction. And there's been some confusion about this online, but I want to make it abundantly clear that this is not just about the international Binance entity. This also includes the U.S.-based holdings company. In the complaint, throughout, about, throughout the complaint, they talk about uh, really these interesting allegations. I'll read you some of them, but basically they say, listen, this is all just one enterprise. It's a common enterprise. They're and if you look on chain, that's actually corroborated. I've I've looked several times, tweeted out. Other people have done research that these entities just swap funds back and forth to one another. It seems more like just a shell company than anything else. It seems like the same company based on how they're moving funds between one another. Absolutely, and and, and that's at the core. So you know, for the folks that say, "Oh, this doesn't really impact Binance US," I think that's a incorrect reading of uh, of the case. There's this uh, awesome allegation that I want to. Um, read for you from the complaint. It's a paragraph 81. And it talks about in 2019, CZ and BAM Trading launched Binance US, a digital asset spot trading platform that offers its customer offers services to US customers. When he hired BAM Trading, CZ described Binance as the pirate ship and explained that he wished for Binance.us to be a Navy boat. Um, I think that's fascinating, like just as a little little nugget there that, you know, he's describing like, oh, Binance is a pirate oper operation. You really want to be using that language with U.S. regulators and 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 explaining this connection between the, the entities. I think it's really problematic for them. And part of the relief, OK, in this suit is they want CZ and any of these affiliate companies to be, number one, barred from operating uh, in the United States. Number two, they want a court order, an injunction that restricts them from ever obtaining registration appropriate to, in fact, be uh, offering products in the United States. So this is this is an existential threat to Binance, at least in the United States, right? Obviously, they have offshore operations that aren't really touched. But as far as the U.S. goes, this is an existential threat to Binance, in, in particular, Binance U.S. Wow. Crazy. It, crazy stuff going on with, with them. And they have been... Uh, a very sketchy entity, not just Binance, but also CZ. I'm not sure if it was uh, included in the the actual suit itself, but uh, he has over. It's now been revealed that he has over had over 300 prop trading accounts on the Binance platform with his name. And so, not only is it is a potential for a secondary suit still there because they, as a platform, are offering what could be considered. Uh, by the courts or by Congress to be uh, investment securities, but also they have derivatives that are uh, that are underlying what could be uh, uh, these unregistered securities. And the CEO of the company is then using prop trading accounts in his name to trade using uh, using that insider consumer data. It is well, levels upon levels of potential suits. And 
you know, you went through it and you offered a great summary of sort of like the most uh, alarming things, right? But amazingly, even with that summary you just offered, you neglected to mention perhaps the most alarming thing that should keep CZ and all the Binance folks up at night, which is the Hamas transactions, right? The fact that, that I don't know if you, you caught that or how deeply you read in it, but there are allegations, and I'll read from the complaint here, in February 2019, after receiving information on Hamas transactions, that's that's literally an email that, that, that was uh, obtained somehow by CFTC, uh, the compliance officer, Lim, explained to a colleague that terrorists usually send small amounts as, as large amounts constitute money laundering. Amazingly, like that they would make that statement and put it in writing. Then it says, um, he replied, well, you can barely buy an AK-47 with 600 bucks. And this is uh, customers, you know, interacting and saying, like, come on, they're here for a crime. Binance has uh, agreed. We see the bad, but we close two eyes. That's a quote from a Binance employee. We see the bad, but we close two eyes. I don't know if that's a translated quote or you know, it sounds like it's, it's translated in English. But, uh, man, if I were them, okay, the CFTC suit would be the least of my worries. I would be far more concerned about some potential DOJ action being brought against them. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I suppose it helps CZ in the fact that nobody knows where Binance is even incorporated um, or where CZ is currently located. So I, I suppose that helps. Does it say in 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 these uh, in these filings where Binance, the company, is incorporated? It's yes. They always have to plead jurisdiction. Um, but so let's just make sure um, they plead. Obviously, that they interact with U.S. customers, which gives them the jurisdictional hook here. But they say he is the chief officer. They launched Binance from um, Shanghai, China. And let's see, based on media reports, he currently resides in, in Dubai, in the UAE. Wow. And we know how accommodative Dubai is of, uh, of crypto fraudsters. So potentially that is an ex-ante measure in case Interpol uh, ever ever goes after him like, uh, like Do Kwan or obviously the, uh, the two Three Arrows capital founders who are now probably stuck in Dubai for life, unfortunately. Um, some of the active cases in courts that are going on currently, I know uh, I read a few headlines, I believe it was a month ago, about active cases having to do with Justin Sun. Um, and within that, that case that was uh, revolving around Tron and securities offerings, it, it classified and categorized Ethereum as a security. What are the biggest sort of active court cases right now that are going after not just Ethereum, but certain cryptocurrencies and, and deeming them as securities? Are, is there more than one? Oh, absolutely. Um, so the, the biggest case I think that everyone is focused on is the SEC versus Ripple suit. Um, that, just to give folks a sort of summary of where that's at, uh, it has gone through discovery. They have, each side has produced a whole plethora of experts, experts claiming all sorts of different conclusions about the, the price movement of XRP and how it's controlled or not controlled or, and expectations of some of the purchasers buying it. Um, I mean, there was, I think there's like eight or nine different experts uh, that have been disclosed by the respective parties. And they've also put forward a complete briefing on what's called a motion for summary judgment. Motion for summary judgment is focused on having the court determine as a matter of law, um, these cross motions, whether or not XRP and the sales violated securities laws. 
Um, so that is pending. Uh, there's some hope that we might get a ruling on that by June, if not June, July. So we might have some fireworks over the summer on that front. But the key thing to remember, though, is that even if XRP wins, or even if the SEC wins, I I would put a lot of money on the fact that this is going up to the appellate court. There will not this will not be a situation where either side just lies down um, after a ruling on the motion for summary judgment. So it's it's never really over in the law in our endless appeal system. So don't be surprised if we get a ruling uh, and it, it, it makes uh, some adverse determination with respect to XRP and you see them immediately file an appeal into uh, the appellate court. So that's the big one. Um, we, we, we Obviously, one of the ones I, I think is very fascinating is this case and it's not necessarily brought by um, uh, a regulator per se, but it's uh, this NBA Top Shots case. Uh, have you heard about this one? No. Well, okay. actually, yes, I had. This was the the trading card one, NFT sort of thing, right? Yeah, this is the Top Shots. Uh, it was it was um, filed in the Southern District. Uh, it's Freel versus Dapper Labs, and basically, it was a, a private piece of litigation that was filed against. Um, Dapper Labs alleging that the uh, sale on of the top shots were in fact securities, that they were investment contracts. And to me, the reason why this is so fascinating is because obviously we know that there's regulators out there that can file enforcement actions, right? But they are limited by bandwidth considerations, by bu budget considerations. They're limited by, you know, really having to pick and choose what cases they're going to prosecute and put forward. That's the SEC, CFTC, and also state attorneys general and other uh, uh, state regulators. They're limited, right? Because there's only so much bandwidth those offices have. But you know what has a lot more bandwidth? People like me, private civil litigators. There's, you know, tens of thousands of us out there that can file these types of suits. And what we see in the Dapper Labs case is we see a, basically a roadmap to how to file a case and get it past a motion to dismiss. So let me give you some basic civil procedure 101 that's essential for any, any case in the world. Um, somebody can always walk out and they can go down to their local courthouse and they can file a complaint. I could file a complaint right now. That Joe Consorti, uh, he stole my car and he gave it to an alien, right? Now the problem is that if I were to file that complaint, you could hire a lawyer very quickly and move to dismiss it. And courts apply what's called a plausibility standard. They require certain notice pleading. All of that's a fancy way of saying like the judges have a preliminary determination to see, is this case plausible? Do they elect, uh, do they, does the plaintiff allege facts that if true would entitle them to relief? And in the crazy example I just gave you about an alien, judge, judges would throw that out right away. They'd say, this is just implausible we're not going to uh, uh, buy this story. Um, there's not enough facts. It's all conclusory. We're done with this case. Um, in the Dapper Labs case, what many hoped would happen is then you, on the NFT side, the pro NFT side, they would say, Judge, we want you to dismiss this case outright. There's no plausible claim that these NFT sales were, in fact, securities. But what did the judge do? The judge says, Well, you make good arguments. There is an argument that these things aren't investment contracts. They're not securities. However, I'm not prepared at the pleading stage, at the initial uh, presentment of this complaint. I'm not prepared to dismiss the suit. I'm going to let it go forward. 
Now, Joe, that is extremely significant, okay? Because anybody who follows litigation knows that once you get past a motion to dismiss, you have discovery. Discovery is extremely expensive for a lot of folks, particularly people launching these tokens. And they're going to spend a lot of money defending civil litigators if they can't kill the case with a motion to dismiss. So for my purposes, I think the Dapper Labs case is fascinating because if courts continue to apply a liberal standard and they let cases move forward and they don't dismiss them right off the bat with a motion to dismiss, that means that plaintiff's lawyers are going to increasingly become pretty bullish, right, about filing suits, going after these honey, uh, you know, honey pots of money that made all these, you know, all this huge millions and millions of dollars off NFTs and other projects. And they're going to say, we're bringing private civil enforcement actions, regardless of what CFTC and F SEC does. And so uh, through this uh, NBA suit going forward uh, through to discovery, that sort of sets the precedent that, oh boy, right? The courts are in favor of going after you know, all of these NFTs. And, and while it may not be the, these big cases versus companies like Ripple and, and et cetera, that basically sets the precedent that like, look, the floodgates are open, go, go sue your heart out for all of these. Like you, like you said, honeypots, and it's a fantastic term to describe them that, you know, really break in all this investor cash over, over the last, you know, two, three years, however long it was. Well, they don't, they don't have to be small cases, right? Like one of the scariest things for any corporate counsel that we advise many of them and, and talk to them, what keeps them up at night is not necessarily a one-off, like one guy bought an NFT and he, he suffered a loss. That's kind of an isolated thing. What keeps a lot of general counsels up at night is class actions, right? Class action suits where you, you combine together a whole big pool of plaintiffs and you bring these actions and you have to pay massive judgments. Okay. To give you an example of this, you may have heard about the Facebook biometric privacy case. It's one of the biggest where they had, they were gathering biometric data and they had to pay a huge judgment to, you know, um, thousands and thousands of plaintiffs. Um, if you are able to advance those types of cause of action, and it's a big if, it's hotly debated, but if you can get those moving forward slowly and steadily, you might see increasingly private attorneys fill the role and come to the aid of the regulators who can't bring all these actions on their own. And I'll give you a perfect example, okay? Right now with the Binance suit, we have a CFTC allegation that they had these 300 prop accounts, right? They called them house accounts that they used to trade, Right. And I tweeted about this, like if, if you're out there and you suffered significant losses, um, you know, I, I do not, uh, I anticipate you're going to see attorneys representing some of these folks filing suits against entities, uh, exchanges, et cetera, because of the, the way in which they uh, were trading against customers. And again, you don't need to prove the allegations at a pleading stage. You get discovery. You get to take people's depositions, you get documents, you get records. All you have to do is have a plausible claim and be able to state allegations that are specific to support that claim. Um, so it's a pretty lenient standard. And if you continue to uh, see bad actors in the space, you will continue to see a ramp up of private enforcement. And if there's anything that's certain about crypto is that there's absolutely no shortage of bad actors. When one dies, two more, two more take its place. Um, absolutely fascinating stuff. And I suppose my same question goes for the Ripple suit, right? Should we we get um, we get a decision here, and even if it does end up being appealed, does that set the precedent that sh that crypto more broadly, right? If there's a company that issued a token and it has control to some degree over that token, 
does that set the precedent that crypto more broadly is a slew of securities and does that sort of open the door for more lawsuits to come for even even larger things like ethereum i suppose yeah absolutely we'll, we'll put a put ethereum for aside because there's some special issues but the, the the takeaway i think from our securities law um is that it is fact specific okay and i really want to bold and underline that if you're taking notes Securities laws are fact specific, meaning that each and every circumstance, you have a situation where something could or cannot be a security based on what actually transpired. And let me give you an example. Many in the Bitcoin circles, and we're on the Bitcoin layer here, they say, well, Bitcoin is not a security. Yes, that's true, right? But if, if Joe Consorti is operating an exchange and he says, give me your Bitcoin, I'll loan it out to other people and I will pay you le uh, yield. Suddenly that transaction with that's a commodity, an contract. Yep. right. That's an investment contract. That is your, you have a reasonable expectation of profit based on Joe's ability to identify people to lend the Bitcoin to. So even though the underlying instrumentality, the underlying vehicle of Bitcoin is not a security, doesn't mean the transaction you entered into was in fact a security. So what do you have? You've got all these exchanges are doing these, or, or many of them are offering these yield products, right? Which is going to raise concerns about securities, but then they're also aiding in the aiding and abetting the sale of these things themselves. So arguably that also files, uh, falls under a section five violation that they're aiding and abetting the sale of an unregistered security. So you, you've got many different ways you can pull at this thread here, um, where you could say, okay, this activity in particular is lawful. This one is not. And I think it's going to be case by case basis. And I think the the misconception out in the Bitcoin space is that Gary Gensler can stand up uh, like a white knight and just say, all of this is a security. And it is. And the reality is that's not how the laws work. If he believes something is a security, he has to go file a suit. He has to do the, go through the discovery process and he has to get a judge to agree with him or, you know, not him, but his deputies, you know what I mean? His, the people at the SEC have to file the suit and they have to get that judgment. That is really onerous, right? That means that they, you know, with 10,000 different tokens, they have to go after 10,000 different developers that have put these things in the market. So what I think they're slowly and steadily realizing is that we can't go after every single project. We have to go after the choke points, right? We have to go after the exchanges the on-ramps, the liquidity providers, the main sources where these things get listed. And I was reading something from uh, a really good, I don't know if you've, I thought we were going to get into it at some point, but uh, there was a, a fascinating summary that was offered by really one of the, the white shoe firms um, in, uh, in, um, in DC uh, that, that provide like a, a basis of all the different um, uh, pieces of uh, banking regulations and, and enforcement actions that are being brought right now. Uh, I forget the firm's name, but it, it's a, a preeminent firm that was just uh, put forward and they summarized the coordinated effort. Um, okay, there it is, Cooper and Kirk. Uh, a coordinated effort by regulators to really drive businesses out of the financial system, the crypto businesses. You know, they, they're losing bank accounts. They're losing access to ACH networks. With no explanation, their banking partners are just saying, sorry, we can't do business with you. Mm -hmm. uh, they are even uh, having personal accounts of employees who work at crypto funds, including crypto hedge funds saying, hey, my personal bank accounts are being shut down. So all of this is sort of a coordinated effort to, I, I believe, to try to clamp down in this industry in the wake of FTX's blow up. It certainly seems like it. Now, if you can, 
explain to the viewers what Operation Choke Point, the first one was, obviously during the Obama administration, right? You know, if you can't necessarily change the laws, then you could go out uh, about it in a very roundabout way and sort of cut it off at, at the source, right? Um, and, and we're sort of seeing the exact same thing here now. If you can't, if it takes long, if it's a long process for the relevant regulatory agencies to, have to actually go after these one by one in the courts, you could just cut off the dollar on ramps. Yeah, and, and that's it, really. The original Operation Choke Point, um, it really was sort of an informal initiative by the DOJ and other regulators. Uh, I think it was 2012 or 2013. And, and they were effectively, uh, all these activities that were deemed to be inappropriate uh, or not politically correct, you know, the, the payday lenders, the firearms dealers, high risks of fraud, those sorts of things, they would basically uh, try to put the screws on the banks and uh, their on-ramps and off-ramps that were engaging and supporting those industries. Um, there were some with the cannabis industry that was part of this, um, other sort of, you know, uh, I would say, uh, not, not the most, uh, favorable, most favored activities. Okay. That's, it was an overarching idea to say these unfavored activities that we don't support for political reasons, we're not going to go after you directly. We're going to go after you through intermediaries that are supporting and, um, and allowing your, your activity to continue. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Foundation Devices. Passport is the Bitcoin hardware wallet that you already know how to use. With a gorgeous design and familiar interface, Passport makes it easier than ever to self-custody your Bitcoin. Take a look. This is an absolutely beautiful device. No more sitting at your computer or squinting at tiny screens. Passport, this small device that fits in the palm of your hand right here, it seamlessly connects to your phone and empowers you to quickly view your balances and move Bitcoin into and out of cold storage. And today we're off Offering a special deal. You can use the code Bitcoin Layer for $10 off your own passport when you receive uh, checkout, or you can go to the link in our description to learn more. Now, back to the video. Tremendous summary about what is going on from the legal perspective. Uh, you know, again, there is always so much developing here. And so the viewers. We haven't even talked about Coinbase in the Wells notice. We haven't. Let's, let's, let's review that because uh, that was making headlines. Uh, early last week, um, let, let's discuss first uh, First and foremost, uh, explain to the viewers what a Wells notice is and, and, and why Coinbase was served one. Sure. So um, a Wells notice is a uh, informal, um, uh, well, it's, it's, it's formal, but it's not a, not a formal piece of litigation. It's a formal notice from the SEC of a potential uh, securities violation and the potential recommendation that is coming for an enforcement action. So it's kind of like a pre-suit letter, um, basically saying, you know, our enforcement division has done a thorough investigation and we are going to recommend some enforcement action against you. But out of fairness to you, we're going to let you make what's called a Wells submission. And a Wells submission is a process whereby Coinbase can voluntarily, if they so choose, submit their position. So the idea is that when a department at the SEC, the enforcement division is doing a review, they're going to conduct their thorough review independent of, in, in many ways, 
uh, Coinbase. They may ask him for comment. They may ask him for their position. Uh, they may ask him for supporting documents. But at the end of the day, they're going to come down. They're going to make a recommendation to their superiors should we file a piece of litigation. Okay. So before they make that recommendation to their superiors, they issue the Wells notice to the target of their enforcement. And they say, we're going to recommend this. We want you to make a submission. So then if Coinbase, for example, chose to make a Wells submission, then the superiors of the SEC, they get the enforcement division's whole summary of recommendations and why they think certain cause of action should be asserted for securities violations. They also get the other side of the story from Coinbase. And then they have to rubber stamp it in most cases, say, yep, you're going forward. You're going to file a piece of litigation. So I can tell you many people think that a Wells notice is mo mostly a formality, that their mind is made up, that they're going to be filing a suit. It's just a question of when, not if. But they do, out of fundamental fairness, uh, want the other side's story just in case maybe they're perhaps uh, they missed something or they're not considering something fully. Got it. So it's a it's sort of a, a pre-lawsuit notice within which there's a chance for a rebuttal that could remove the possibility of a lawsuit if something was missed. Correct. Got it. Okay. And, and has the Wells notice itself, like have the details emerged? Do we know exactly what Coinbase is being? Obviously, we know that its investment offerings probably fall under that category. But do we know specifically uh, for what product it was? No, that's a great question. There, There's some suggestion that it may based on some of the verbiage they use, may relate to their staking activities. Um, that That is the, the supposition. Uh, however, uh, it's possible that it's more broad, that it could relate to some of the, the securities in general on their platform. I mean, obviously, Gary Gensler uh, has been all out there saying, uh, out there on numerous occasions saying, when we look at these exchanges, the vast majority of the things trading on these are, are securities. Uh, so, you know, I would be surprised if the suit that's filed against Coinbase, because I do think one is coming, put me down as predicting that, um, I would be surprised if the suit only relates to staking activities. If it only relates to staking activities of various tokens, I think that's going to be enormous sigh of relief for Coinbase. If it's broader than that, and it relates to things like, you know, the tokens they're listing and some of the activities that uh, beyond staking on their platform, the trading in general of these these tokens, um, that is going to be really problematic. That's going to be an, also an existential threat to Coinbase. Um, and you're going to have all these sort of mini cases, right? You're going to have cases within a case about all these various different tokens and what was the pitch of the token and why did they list it and what was their criteria for listing the various tokens and how decentralized each token is and what expectations of profit. I mean, think about it. If they if they were to truly pursue this case and go after every token that could potentially be a security, you'd have, you know, uh, I don't know how many, how many tokens are in Coinbase these days, like no, dozens of cases within yeah. cases. Yeah. Yeah, no. And that would take, that would take decades to say the very least. So I, I suppose it is much more efficient to just cut off access to U.S. dollar on and off ramps rather than pursuing it, you know, the, the more formal way. Yes. Remarkable. So that's, that, that's, that's another one to watch. Um, obviously, we, we were going to get to the, the Justin Sun uh, complaint as well. Yes, right? Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. And, and of course, any other sort of major, major, major legal action that's happening in the crypto space. Right. Um, so just before we get to Justin Sun, put me down as someone that uh, is a strong believer in the fact that although CFT, the CFTC 
jump the gun and they were the first to the courthouse door with their complaint against Binance, I would be shocked if there isn't a case this year uh, against Binance by the SEC as well. Um, and I, although I'm not as convinced, I think it's a better uh, than 50% chance you may also get a DOJ action against Binance um, as well for some of the Triple reasons. Triple threat. That's remarkable. Binance's legal team is going to be certainly strapped. I hope they're paid well. Yes. Um, but we were going to get to a suit that was filed on the 22nd against uh, Justin Sun and his companies for fraud and securities violation. Um, I think the fascinating part about this is that they went a little bit further than just um, the Securities Act and, and added these counts uh, in here for various claims of fraud, which are uh, <laughs> interesting. Um, not surprising, right? But um, definitely something that uh, I think many in the crypto space were anticipating at some point. But I think the the idea is, uh, I'll read you just the first sentence, that this action arises from Justin Sun's orchestration of an unregistered offer sale manipulative trading and unlawful touting of crypto asset securities. So it's a broad suit. It engages in a whole variety of um, uh, activities and businesses that he's involved with. And uh, they allege that he worked through multiple companies uh, to pump, to manipulate, to sell, to, uh, to sell the, the, the following assets, XRT, that's Tron and BTT beginning in 2017 and continuing through the current day. He's distributed billions of these tokens to the public while creating active secondary markets on them, at, which can be manipulated in trading. So he's on both sides, right? Not only are they saying you sold this thing that is an unregistered security, but you also intervene in the spot markets and develop those markets and pump those markets so you could unload your bags. Oy vey, oy vey. It sounds a lot like what uh, some of the shady behavior that we see going on behind the scenes at Binance as well. And so for, for that reason, uh, Joe, you've convinced me, you can also mark me down that we're, we're going to see an SEC and potentially DOJ action uh, for, for Binance as well. Yeah, absolutely. Totally wild. Totally wild. Is there anything that we should keep our ear to the ground for? Maybe stuff that you're watching that hasn't hit the headlines yet. Um, I know there are certain things that you can't talk about from active cases that you're working on, but mm -hmm. is there anything that our viewers should be should be uh, on the lookout for, you know, in the coming weeks and months is it when it comes to, uh, you know, lawsuits in the crypto space? Yes. Um, so I uh, we already mentioned the Coinbase Wells notice. I think it's a it's a done deal. At some point, there's going to be a case. I mean, even their general counsel said, you know, uh, we look forward to our day in court to fight this issue. So um, I will tell you this. If you are a major crypto exchange in the United States, I would expect you to, at some point, face some enforcement action. And it can be this year, it can be next. Uh, I don't pretend to know the exact timing, but I would be surprised if they're going to do selective enforcement. And the interesting thing to me is that, correct me if I'm wrong here, because you may know the answer to this, but uh, my understanding is that virtually every major broker dealer, every major crypto exchange in the United States, they all deal in tokens that are other than Bitcoin, right? There Correct. isn't a single one I know that is that is truly Bitcoin only. There may be some brokers that, you know, using another platform, I'm not going to name names, but using another platform, they may, uh, you know, offer only Bitcoin services, but yeah. the underlying actual exchange 
is in fact uh, multi-token. Um, and exactly. because of that, I don't see a situation where the SEC is going to pick favorites, right? They're going to probably, you know, go after a variety of them or none of them, right? If the, if the SEC is going to go after Coinbase, I would expect other major exchanges to face similar scrutiny. That's just my view, okay? And just because you haven't heard of it, there could be a variety of different reasons why that their investigation needs more time to complete before they're ready to go charge off and file a lawsuit. So don't think that, uh, you know, the, the fact that you haven't heard about anything doesn't mean it's coming. But obviously, uh, I think that is a critical, uh, it's going to change the landscape of the space. Um, you know, these suits are going to be all consuming. They're going to be existential threats, like I said. But the other thing to remember on the flip side is that litigation takes a long, long time, right? Uh, Joe, do you happen to know off the top of your head when SEC versus Ripple was filed? 2017. No, 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 it was, it was, but actually to your point, um, the, the, uh, SEC versus ripple was, was, we know now was being investigated way back when I think it was 2018, they started the investigation. And during the course of 2018, 2019, they are engaging in tolling agreements where they basically said, we're not going to file suit because we're still investigating it, but the statute of limitations is coming. So we want to toll the agreement by agreement of the parties to not have the statute run. And you can do that. That's very common in litigation, just saying we're agreeing uh, to try to continue to negotiate this. But to answer the question I pose to you, the original suit by the SEC against Ripple was filed in December of 2020. We do not have motions for summary judgment ruled upon, right? Assuming we get a ruling sometime this summer or even in the beginning of the fall, okay, what I just told you is that you can expect that to be appealed, right? The appellate process can take six months to a year or more, right? So you're not going to have firm determination on that one case until likely, I would say, 2024 at this point. So that's, you know, that's over three years and you still don't have a uh, finality. You still don't have a conclusion on that case. So for suits that are filed against Coinbase or uh, other major exchanges, don't expect that you're going to have a, a quick resolution of those things uh, at you know within six months or three months, unless there's some bizarre settlement where the SEC says uh, you know just pay a fine and be done with it. Um, I would I would bet against that. But what I think you should notice is that if there is a broker deal that can be made, where maybe the SEC, maybe the exchanges say something like, well, we're going to delist tokens you want us to, but we're not going to. Uh, the list all of them, that might be their best case scenario. Because if you get involved in long protracted litigation, you have this cloud above you. Um, it's very difficult to operate as a business uh, in the long run, at least in the United States. So for Coinbase, uh, would with that last sentence in mind, would the path of least resistance rather than um, you know going through the motions and trying to justify some of the things that it has on its exchange that could be considered securities and are included in the suit just removing those securities from its exchange outright is that a possibility absolutely um i mean and i know that there's a lot of people in the bitcoin sphere that have critical things to say about coinbase but to their credit they did go out of their way, at least according to their general counsel, to ask the SEC on numerous occasions, tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us, you know, tell us what uh, what tokens on this platform you think are securities that are uh, investment contracts. And they kind of were rebuked, right? They weren't given clear guidance. Um, and I think that's what they wanted all along. I mean, I, now to play devil's advocate on the other side, 
there have been actions that have been filed um, by the SEC uh, for insider trading on Coinbase. I don't know if you've heard about that that suit. That that remains pending. They, they last July they filed uh, filed suit against um, uh, the Coin, Coinbase manager and two others for inside trading. And in in that suit, there was I think approximately a dozen different assets. The SEC took the position that those were securities. So if you're Coinbase's uh, general counsel and you uh, are aware that the SEC has taken a formal position in court that multiple assets in your platform are securities, what should you do? Um, if it were me, okay, and not giving any legal advice for free to Coinbase, but hypothetically, I would say delist those, right? Because they've taken a formal position in court that these things are securities. Don't keep trading them. And if you recall, Joe, when they filed, when the SEC filed the suit against Ripple Labs, what did most major UX exchanges do with XRP? Delisted. Yeah, exactly. So what changed, okay? What changed from 2020 where the exchanges were sort of informally respecting the SEC's written guidance on this to 2023, where now, or in 2022, where now that you have the SEC saying things are specifically securities in, in court filings and pleadings, and you're just ignoring it and just continuing to allow these things to proliferate on your platform. I think that's a mistake personally, but I understand why they're fighting for it. They are really, they, they're true believers that they should be able to have uh, the ability to list all these things and that they're not securities. So I don't begrudge them their day in court. Absolutely. Fascinating. And uh, to say the very least, you know, uh, lawyers will have their hands full when it comes to crypto. Uh, I, I know you are a very, very busy man, Joe, and we'll we'll keep you for a few more minutes. Uh, I want to get your take on, uh, on what's happening in macro. Uh, it's remarkable, and I've said this many times, how uh, you are an active commercial litigator, yet you, you have such great markets acumen that I certainly respect a whole lot. What's your take on uh, you know the path forward for, for the real economy um, and for, I suppose, Fed policy? You were on our Twitter space two weeks ago, or, or last week, I believe, uh, on Wednesday when Powell shifted a whole bunch of language. Uh, the statement itself was changed in the days since. We've heard several Fed speakers come out and sort of iterate that terminal may be nearing um, a, a uh, uh, not the word pause hasn't been explicitly used, but uh, a 25 basis point rate increase in May uh, seems uh, seems reasonable is some of the phrasing that's been used. What's your take on what's happening here? I saw that you were short um, short twos for a while. I don't know if you're still in that trade, but no, nope, I'm out. But I, I I made some money there. Uh, take your 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 bunts and singles, right? That's the market yes. we're in. For very me. well done, very well done. By the way, you timed that well. Yeah, thank you. Um, no, I mean here's the thing. So I always like to th try to figure out um, what the overarching narrative is in the market right now, and how far or um, how far removed that is from the, the facts on the ground, okay? So you had the Silicon Valley blow up. You had the Silicon uh, Signature Bank go down. You had general unease and fear in the banking system. And I'm looking at these banks. They're still sort of hovering, the regional banks, like the stock prices, the equity prices, still hovering near the lows. Um, I think that the bond market right now uh, is a little unsure what to make of that. If that is truly contained, I think there's been some encouraging signs with uh, a little bit less usage of the the BTFP that uh, uh, that was rolled out, and I think that some people think, oh, it's all quiet right now. But 
I, I do think there's a little bit of unease in the, in the in the bond market right now. And you're seeing that in the prices of bonds because they don't know what to make of that. However, okay, if if you're at this point right now and you have the Fed saying very clearly, Joe, no cuts on the horizon. We don't anticipate any cuts this year. We actually anticipate at least you know some further potential firming policy firming, I think is the word they're using, right? Yep. Uh, which can be interpreted to mean either holding steady or potentially a, a modest, you know, de minimis, like, you know, 25 basis point uh, hike. If that is the case, one of two things is true. Either the whole system right now is ready to fall off a cliff and you're going to have a significant systemic risk that will force the Fed for financial stability reasons to pivot Okay. Or alternatively, the bond market is horribly mispriced. And I will tell you that I lead toward, lean towards the latter right now. I think that the economic data we're, we're seeing overall, you can characterize it as um, sort of weakening, um, but not yet alarming. And until you get it to be truly alarming, until you see a rapid increase in unemployment, which I don't particularly think you're going to see until perhaps the second half of this year. I could be wrong on that, but just right now, the data we have um, doesn't show it's coming in the next month or two. And until, if you don't see that, or you don't see something systemic forcing their hand at moving their monetary policy targets, I don't know why the bonds are priced where they're at right now. I, I can't really figure it out. I think it is a mis... And I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. It seems to be mispriced. It seems to be, though, like this understanding that you know, all hell's about to break loose. And I don't think you see that in the data. Um, and if that is the case, then I think bonds need to sell off, particularly the twos need to sell off. They may not go back to, you know, north of 5%, but you might get them back closer to, you know, four and a half, four, six, and that should put way down equity prices, theoretically, although the equity markets doesn't seem to care about anything these days. I was just looking at the NASDAQ and it, it, it's, you know, it's on a rage, it's especially um, in a new bull market. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, but you know, again, my view is that the equity market provides very little signal, if any, mm -hmm. uh, for the real economy. So I don't really put a whole lot of stock in what the equity market's you know, telling me. Um, so, so, the, so I think those are the two scenarios, either something massive is about to break, which again, I discount. I don't really think that's the case. I think you've got this coordinated, targeted approaches by the Fed where they're going to put financial stability over here and try to take care of it. And like you, I think you use this analogy of using 10 fingers and 10 toes to put up all the, uh, put a plug in anything that, that starts to erupt. Um, I think that's the base case that I have. And then at the same time, I expect them uh, to continue to at least remaining firm with the current rates, if not increasing them, and being very, very strong and steadfast about inflation. And if that's the case, then, you know, we're in for a very choppy sort of muddling through type year, in my view. Absolutely. And I definitely align with the idea that the, there was, and, and this is, you know, well known that the, the action in rates has been historic, right? Since 1987, you've never seen that dramatic of a fall in the two-year yield in a single day as of uh, three weeks ago, what happened three weeks ago. And so- Clearly, the bond market, at least it thinks it it sees something that will warrant more easy monetary policy, like imminently on the horizon. That's what you would infer from this kind of price action. But by the same token, like you said, that like you said, the data doesn't bear that out. 
uh, if you were looking at like imminent credit stress, um, that's quickly making its way to businesses and quickly making its way to consumers, you'd see much more turmoil than is currently priced in. You'd see, you'd see spreads blowing out for investment grade and high yield borrowers. You don't see that. Uh, you would see, despite these emergency lending facilities being, uh, created by the Fed, um, you would see not only them rising in usage week after week, which they haven't been, BTFB has been rising marginally, but but flat. Um, the discount window has been falling, but you'd also see interbank stress uh, flying through the roof, whether you're um, uh, you know, taking a look at, uh, I suppose, cross-currency basis swaps, things like fraught OIS to, to judge that, and you're not seeing that. So the rates market has this huge reaction, and now it seems like it may have been over its skis a little bit in terms of expecting imminent cuts, right? I think that was more, mostly knee-jerk reaction because the data doesn't really bear that out. It doesn't bear out, like you said, it doesn't bear out that there's imminent economic Armageddon that will force cuts. And I'm leaning more into the camp that the Fed has created these facilities, the fact that their usage is dropping week on week and that their balance sheet is now, it was increasing, but now it's reducing. It shows that this stress is still in the banking system and is still elevated, but there isn't this mad dash anymore. Like the facilities and the Fed speak saying, yo, we've got you banks is working and is doing its job in, in lowering that fear. And you know, obviously I do anticipate uh, a slowdown in credit creation uh, over the course of the next six to nine months and eventually a, a recession later this year. But um, you know, no imminent Armageddon that would uh, warrant a, a shift in policy. The Fed has these facilities in place. It is clearly, based on how they're being used, calmed investor sentiment. And therefore, it's giving the Fed the ability to keep its policy rate elevated, whether it pauses here or raises one more just for posterity's sake, uh, and allow that tight policy to eventually flow through to businesses and the consumer uh, and, and bring down inflation, which is what it's been trying to do uh, this entire time. You know, granted, uh, the core, the inverse correlation between unemployment and uh, CPI inflation um, is basically non-existent now. It's how the Fed conducts policy. And so it does seem like the bond market is a little bit mispriced. I think, um, you know, uh, 450 on twos is definitely reasonable. We, you know, we, we could begin approaching that. Um, yeah, no, that that's my outlook. I certainly agree with you um, on the on, on the majority of it. I am uh, uh, definitely uncertain um, as to it, it just, you know, it's still something I've been thinking about. Why on earth was the bid three weeks ago, um, 80 set down 87 basis points in one day on twos. Why did that happen? What did what did the bond market see? Um, you know, did it see that uh, they're, they're, they're following this uh, blow up in regional banks, something way more fragile and under the surface exploded. And so everyone's rushing to safety. You know, did the bond market see that? Well, the fact that it sold off by, you know, it sold off from its lows back up 50 basis points and suggest that that wasn't the case and that it was a knee jerk reaction. But either way, um, very strange, very strange. Market well, act, two, sure. two things to think about as you're trying to analyze these moves and Number one, you know, I think it's important to focus on how much signal is really there or how much of it is noise in the short term, right? Short term moves. And I think there's a lot of noise in short term moves. That's just my, my view. But I think number two is that you've had a whole generation of traders and money managers mm -hmm. who, whenever there's the slightest bit of economic turmoil or financial instability, what have they been met with? They've been met with the Fed cutting rates. They just reflexively believe the Fed's going to come in and cut rates and that's going to save the day. And everybody I know that I talk to that is an institutional manager of money, that is still their belief. I mean, the whole uh, trope about, you know, the Fed is going to uh, hike until they break something and then they're going to stop and then they're going to immediately cut. 
that is pervasive. Again, that is the narrative that is just capturing our entire uh, uh, zeitgeist. Okay, that they're gonna they're gonna pivot. They're gonna pivot. It's coming. It's coming any day now. But what I think they have adopted as their strategy now is that again, financial stability over here, monetary policy over here. We're gonna try and separate the two, and we're gonna try to do this. You know this juggling act between the two, a stop-start approach where we're going to help over here, but we're not going to help over here because we're serious about kicking inflation. Um, that's important. And I think uh, traders are still missing that. So that's number 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 one, number two, I think. But I guess there's a third issue that I think that when you're looking at the bond moves in, in a short period of time, in, in, in a very uncertain, uneasy time, you have to remember what those moves signify. Ultimately, you know, and I look at euro dollar futures a lot. I know some people don't like that metric, but I, I happen to enjoy looking at euro dollar futures. What they're showing is they're showing hedging activity. Okay. Hedging activity doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the train's about to come off the tracks and every all hell's about to be, break loose. Hedging activity would be expected in an environment where there's a ton of uncertainty. We don't know how far the Fed's going to go. We don't know if they're going to, they've already gone too far. We don't know how well the data is going to hold up. We think this can reverse on a dime if certain conditions are met. So we're going to put hedges on. And it doesn't, you know, I, there's a Jeff Snyder, who I think we both follow. Uh, he talks about this all the time. He's like, you can't take the curves at face value in the euro dollar market. You can't say like, well, because euro dollars are pricing at, at XYZ that this means X amount of cuts. What you right. can take is that there are major money managers that are hedging and they're concerned that something has broken or is likely to break if we continue on our, our given tra trajectory. But I will tell you that at various different points over the last year, the bond market has simply been wrong on how it's priced things. Um, you can make that case very clearly that you know a year ago, uh, some of the curves and some of the inversions we were seeing were just flat out wrong given the time frame and the data we have on the ground right now. So. Again, I wouldn't read too much into the day-to-day -day movements. I think you need to look at fundamentally the typical cycle. You know, what what is what is going to roll over? Michael Cantro, who I follow on Twitter, I think he's he's generally has a pretty good outlook on some of this stuff. He talks about, you know, housing really needs to be at the front line. Uh, housing sh should there should be signs in the housing market of of slowing down and 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 really falling off a cliff to be honest before I expect the rest of the link in the chain to start to you know, filter on through to labor. And unemployment is gonna be the last one to fall, right? We know that that will be the last real, uh, uh, when, when, when unemployment's rising really rapidly, you know that the, the recession's on our doorsteps. Absolutely, there's, there's a chain of events that occurs. The Fed has its hands on the reins for now with these various liquidity facilities. And eventually, you'll, you'll begin to see it flow through uh, more materially into the real economy. Joe, excellent, excellent, excellent dialogue, and not just the legal side of things, but also the, the market side of things. Um, any closing thoughts, whether it's on the legal side or on the, uh, on the market side? I'll give you both. Okay. So on the legal side, again, we talked a lot about the litigation today, but I, I strongly suggest everybody go out there and, and review some of the public information that is available on this Operation Choke Point 2.0. Again, uh, hat tip to Nick Carter. I'm going to credit him on that because I think it's a perfect um, uh, moniker for what you should call this because that's what it is. And in particular, if you Google Cooper and Kirk, Cooper and Kirk and Choke Point 2.0, you'll see a report that pops up. OK, 
Okay. This report is essential reading. Um, the, you know, this is a firm that's, you know, white shoe firm that has argued cases and won cases in front of the Illinois, or excuse me, the U.S. Supreme Court and, and various different state Supreme Courts. Um, their firm going out on a limb here and accusing effectively uh, uh, unlawful and unconstitutional actions against the, uh, the crypto industry, I think is a great read, a lot of great citations. It's a very well uh, written and, and thoroughly researched. So go read that. Spend your time on that. Read it again. It's worth your read this weekend. And along the crypto enforcement front, again, I expect more actions regarding banking entities that partner with exchanges on the way that you may not hear lawsuits filed, but that doesn't mean there isn't material changes in the crypto industry, given the efforts of regulators. Um, the second thing from the macro front, okay, what I'm looking at very closely is next week, we're going to get some labor data, right, Joe? Uh, I think, let me get the date right. I think it is on, yes, you get ADP on the 5th, and then you get initial jobless claims on the 6th. Um, again, labor is the core of this issue. Can these hikes, are they actually going to amount to an uptick in initial jobless claims? If you see that, I think that is one more indication that we're getting closer to a recession or a contraction than people might realize. So, but if we don't have the, that labor data, I think the, uh, you know, the narrative, of, uh, you know, no landing or whatever they're, they're saying these days is probably going to continue for some time. Very well said, Joe. I've had my eye on initial jobless claims, um, you know, uh, uh, keeping an eye on it religiously towards the end of last year. And I've waned off of it a little bit, just waiting to see that uptick and the, the pass through of tight credit. We'll get it eventually. And uh, well said, Joe. I'll certainly keep my eye on it as well. Um, thanks again, man. Uh, where can people find you before we sign off? Uh, I'm all over Twitter. You just at Joe Carlosari, you'll find me. And uh, again, I have to say, if, if you need, if you have a litigated dispute, I love doing litigated disputes all over crypto. I represent minors, business disputes, uh, contractual disputes, breach of fiduciary duty claims, negligence claims. Um, I, I don't, I'm not an ambulance chaser. I don't do much PI work. Uh, but if it's a commercial dispute among parties uh, or a securities issue. We have, we have partners and colleagues that work on those regularly in the crypto space. And I work with them very closely given my expertise in, in the crypto industry. So I, I'm happy to help represent you or do an informal consultation. If you Google my name, you'll find my firm's website and uh, there's no charge to, to give me a ring and talk about a, uh, a prospective case and see if I might be able to help you. And if I can help you, I guarantee you, I know someone that's in the crypto industry or, um, uh, crypto legal industry that can't help you. So feel free to reach out. And it's always good to hear from people that are trying to build in the space. Fantastic. Hey, Brian Armstrong, if you're listening, you, you heard all that. <laughs> you know who to call. Uh, Joe, thanks so much again. Everyone follow him on Twitter and uh, take care, guys. See you soon. And again, a special thanks to Passport for sponsoring this video. Foundation Devices is a fantastic company and they make an extremely beautiful device. As you can see here, it is an absolutely remarkable piece of work. It is the best in class design for a Bitcoin hardware wallet. And if you have been on the fence about taking your Bitcoin into self-custody, Now's the time. Not only are you getting a sweet deal, but this is the best device on the market for ease of use and easily putting your Bitcoin into cold storage if you've been on the fence. You can use code BitcoinLayer at checkout. You can go to the BitcoinLayer.com foundation or use the link in our description. Take care, guys.